Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme, recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. Today, we go back to the night of full plate, stories of biting off more than you can chew, our November 2011 theme, stuffed full of delicious revelations. We start off with our first featured storyteller, Chris Harrington, who hungers for a way out of an epic hiking trek. I climbed my first mountain about a month before my fourth birthday. Don't really remember it. And it wasn't the first mountain I'd been up. And then in the following years, I hiked several more mountains, a couple every year. And I say this just to explain that I've been hiking pretty much my entire life. By the time I got to 10 or 12, I started reading about hiking the Appalachian Trail. It became my dream. Not a dream that I actually thought I'd get to, but uh, a dream. One of those things that's kind of out there and beyond reach. In college, I hiked a couple of long trails. The Monadnock Sunapee Greenway, which no one's heard of. And the Long Trail, which some people may have heard of. And it began to look possible. So I decided that after I finished college, I would hike the Appalachian Trail. And so I started saving up money, and my parents saw how much I was able to save in a summer and decided that they'd better step in and fund the hike, for which I was <laughs> very thankful. So I could focus entirely on getting physically prepared for an extensive hike like that. And people have asked me, how do you get prepared for a hike that long? And I think the plan that I had is a plan that I would recommend to anyone doing a hike like that. I ate as much pizza as I could possibly eat, <laughs> as often as I could possibly eat it. It's a five-month hike. If you aren't in shape when you start out, you'll be in shape in the first month. <laughs> and then you've got four more months ahead of you. So don't worry about it. It's entirely mental. It's not physical at all. So four days after I graduated from college, I found myself heading up Mount Katahdin in Maine to start south on the Appalachian Trail. And I should mention that about 95% of people who hike that trail start in Georgia and walk to Maine. But I had to start after the middle of June, so I didn't have enough time to go in that direction. So I started north and headed south. There were about 50 of us who started that year, as opposed to 1,300 who started going north that year. By the time we got out of New Hampshire, there was down to about 10 of us going south. So southbound is a very solitary, lonely hike compared to the northbounders. But that was fine with me, and I had a nice schedule of 150 days or so, and planning to take a day off every 10 days. As I got going, I found out that didn't really work very well. I didn't want to hike at a set schedule. I wanted to hike at whatever pace felt right for me, go as far as I wanted to each day. As I got out of New Hampshire, I was in good shape, and I started going faster and faster and faster as the trails get easy in the mid-Atlantic states. And the midway point of the trail is actually towards the end of Pennsylvania. But for me, the midway point came a couple of days earlier. It was the day I left Port Clinton. And I remember it well because it's the day that I broke a bone in my right foot. Up until that point, I averaged 19 miles a day. From that point on, I averaged 21 miles a day, <laughs> including a vain attempt to cross the state of Maryland in a single day. 
31 miles into that, with the sun on the horizon, no flashlight, carrying a 60-pound pack that I'd resupplied the day before, I just decided I wasn't going to make those last 13 miles. So I went into Gathlin State Park and went in to talk to the ranger and said, i got to stay here tonight. She said, okay, let me finish what I'm doing and I'll get you some paperwork. I said, all right, I'll be on the floor. <laughs> and I was. And apparently I looked pretty bad because she gave me a can of tuna fish she'd been saving for a cat. Then an old couple came by and gave me this bright, juicy tomato as I was cooking supper by the light of a Coke machine. <laughs> you must be looking pretty bad when people are giving you food they're saving for their cat. <laughs> but I was feeling great, so I kept on going. By the time I got out of the Shenandoahs, my foot had pretty much healed. I was back to walking normally. There was some more excitement. Hurricane Hugo struck the Appalachian Trail. There was a stretch on Garden Mountain, Virginia, where it took a crew with chainsaws four hours to clear half a mile of trail. That's exactly where I was during that storm. The top of the mountains have some cliffs, and they formed some caves. I knew that there was cover up there, but there was none on the side of the mountain, so I was just running from tree to tree up the side of the mountain as all these giant oaks are being toppled around me. It was a very entertaining day, <laughs> one that tends to stick in your memory. But I was still doing fine, then I got into Tennessee and the mountains started getting tough again. Tennessee, they run you over every stinking knob in your path. So it's up 100 feet and down 100 feet and up 50 feet and down 50 feet and up 200 feet and down 200 feet. And they don't do switchbacks and they don't go around anything, it's just up and over. <laughs> and you don't get any views off the top, it's all heavily forested, there's a bald every day or so, so you get occasional views, but mostly you're just going up 50 feet, down 50 feet and up 70 feet and down 70 feet. But I was in great shape, so I was doing fine. Till finally, towards the end of one day, I headed down into a valley and started up the other side and just stopped. Well, that was really odd. I was just exhausted. I had to sit down and rest. I hadn't rested for a couple of months, no matter what mountain I was climbing. I rested for a bit, and I got up and walked 10 or 12 steps and had to sit down and rest again. And got up and walked another 8 to 10 steps and had to sit down and rest again. And that's how I made it up to the ridge crest. And then I had a mile or two of flat ground to get to a lean-to that evening and got in there and I was, boy, I was really puzzled. What had happened? And there had been something like that because when I broke the bone in my foot, I started eating four aspirin a day to knock the pain back and that makes your stomach bleed a little bit as I found out later. And after a month or two, normally with our rich diets, that wouldn't matter, but my diet was rich in calories but not in nutrients, and after a month or two, I started getting anemic because of loss of iron, and I was going slower and slower and slower, and finally in frustration, I took half a day off, and I happened to have some iron pills, so I took one, the next day I was off like a rocket. But this was really different. I wasn't going slow, I'd been doing fine until this last valley. So I couldn't think of any answer, and the next day I got going again, and Got up to the top of the last mountain of that day and just dragging up that mountain. Started down the other side and my brain shut down. I couldn't think about anything. I wouldn't focus on anything. I was just kind of stumbling forwards. Fortunately, I didn't have any more climbs until I got to lean to that night. It was a really cold night and froze. But then I pretty much knew what was going on. I didn't have a scale, of course, and I didn't weigh myself until a week after I was done with the trail, by which time... I had been eating for a week, nonstop, and yet when I weighed myself, I was more than 60 pounds under my starting weight. Not my weight now, but my starting weight. <laughs> so I was literally starving. 
I had used up all of the fat off my body and most of the muscle. I could pick up a 70-pound pack and walk up any mountain until the last couple days. But if without my pack, if I squatted down, I couldn't stand back up without using my arms to pull myself up. I couldn't hold my arms above my head for more than a couple seconds before they were too tired. I couldn't swim anymore. If I jumped into a pool, I'd sink right to the bottom, and I couldn't paddle hard enough to stay on the surface. So I was literally starving. I was eating a good supper, small breakfast, good mid-morning snack and lunch, but once I used up those calories, I was done. So no more reserves. So I was sitting there that night trying to figure out what am I going to do. I was in a really remote part of Tennessee. There weren't any towns listed on my maps at any of the few road crossings I was going to encounter. So it would be hard to get out to a town, and I didn't have any cash anyways. It was in my next food supply, and I didn't have a credit card at the time. So even if I got to a town, I wouldn't have been able to do anything. The only other option was to engage in what is known on the Appalachian Trail as the art of the yogi. Yay, boo-boo. Let's go raise some big investments. <laughs> a proper yogi is where you get someone to give you something without actually asking them for it. And so it was basically kind of like begging, except that you don't actually ask for anything. It works. But I, it was late September by now, and people are back, and kids are back in school. Nobody's out there. It was middle of the week. I hadn't met any hikers for a few days, so that didn't seem very likely. And I didn't have an answer by the time I got going in the morning. And I did meet a few people, but they were just out for day hikes. They weren't carrying anything, not even a lunch. So mid-morning, I'm headed up Roan High Knob, and it's a Roan High Knob shelter, the highest on the trail. There's a nice little cabin set into a grove. I went over and took a look in that cabin. Sitting on the floor in the back of the cabin was a bottle of Aunt Jemima's double distilled dark syrup. It was mostly empty. There's about an inch left in there. But beside it, glowing kind of blue in the light coming in off the door, was a tub of Crisco. So I went in there, and I set my pack down, and I chugged that syrup. Just went gloop. And then I got out my spoon and I opened up that tub of Crisco. <laughs> well, it wasn't quite full. Someone had used some of it. And there was some flecks of pancake in there and a bit of wood ash and some other things I didn't want to look too closely at. <laughs> but that didn't stop me. That's just seasoning. I dug a big old <laughs> translucent spoonful out of there. Sucked that down. You know, people say that when you're starving, things taste so good. There were so many subtle little flavors to that. <laughs> Just running down my throat. It was better than ice cream, though I would have eaten ice cream too. And I took out another spoonful. and You know, it's 110 calories per tablespoon. I was eating, these weren't small spoonfuls. I might have been getting 400 calories in a bite. It was... And I had a third spoonful, but then I put the lid on it and packed it into my pack because I was not going to eat it all in one sitting. <laughs> and I took the bottle of, the empty bottle of syrup until I found a trash can and threw that out. And I had a couple spoonfuls for lunch, and I had a couple spoonfuls for dinner, and I had a couple more for breakfast the next morning. It goes great with oatmeal. <laughs> so I 
carried that for the next couple of days until I licked that tub of Crisco clean. And it got me to North Carolina, my next supply drop. And that day was the fastest day I've ever hiked before or since. Over four miles a day, and I got to the rocks above North Carolina, and I'm looking down on that town, and I can see the post office where I've got my food and money. And just this side of it, there's a big old grocery store with all kinds of rich foods. And I went scooting down into that town, and I got some money, and I went into that grocery store. There's all that rich food. Well, since some of you are eating, I won't tell you what happened there. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Now, it's your chance to take a turn at the featured storyteller table, so to speak. Story entries for our December 2011 theme, Happiness, Stories of the Pursuit, are due this week. Tell us the vision and version of your American dream. Email your happiness story to story at storystorynight.com. Learn more at storystorynight.com. Next up, Story Slam winner Debbie Mahler bites off more than she can chew while skipping school. Boy, did I bit off more than I can chew. (laughs) To tell this story, we've got to go back 40 years. Yeah. I'm in high school, Bishop Watterson, have to wear the same damn uniform, maroon wool, every day. There were seven people in our small little house. Never a minute to yourself. I wake up this Wednesday morning, feeling crampy, pimples all over my face. Man, I'm not going to be able to cut it today. Father Dolan and Sister Mary are going to have to forget it. (laughs) So I knew that every Wednesday afternoon, that was the only time my mama left the house. She had her neighbor women take her bowling. So I thought, okay, this is good. I'm not feeling it at Bishop Watterson today. My mom's going to be gone. I can have the whole house to myself. So I go downstairs. I'm not feeling good. All right, go up. Get some sleep. Okay. Yes. So 11.30, I hear her, Debbie, I'm leaving now. Okay, Mom, bye. Yes. I've had my hair pulled back in a bun. I've given myself a facial. I've got brown clay all over my face. All you can see are my eye sockets. I'm so excited to get down in the basement and watch Days of Our Lives. I'm just so thrilled. So I trot downstairs. I didn't even put a bathrobe on, man. I'm just hightailing it down the basement, pick up the Coke I have hidden in the refrigerator. And I'm downstairs just, ah, oh, this is heaven, down there watching the soaps for 20 minutes. And all of a sudden I hear, boom, 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 gas man. And I jump up and I, what? Oh, my God, that's right. They come and they read the meter, and I think it is downstairs. And so I run out of our little family room, and I look to the left, and I've got my dad's workroom or my mom's storage room with a little lavatory closet bathroom. And I hear him coming across the kitchen above me, and I think, oh, God, go to the lavatory. So I trot over there, and I shut this little narrow closet door. 
I got a sink in one side and a toilet on the other. And I've got, the only thing I could grab on the couch was this little brown afghan that my grandmother knitted. <laughs> so I've got that around my head. I've got this clay mask on my face with my eye sockets. Just all, that's all you can see. And I'm just, dear God, please read the meter and go. <laughs> and then I remember the meter's next to my head. <laughs> No way! <laughs> so I hear his steps, you know, coming right to the bathroom door, and I'm just inhaling every bit of air I can into my lungs. I'm just so petrified. I can't speak. I can't think. And he turns the doorknob, and he opens the door, and I just let this blood-curling scream out, and I lunge at him. And this poor older man, he had to have been, you know, 50 or so, he looks at me and he grabs his chest and he lets out the same blood-curdling scream back at me. He falls back, I fall on him, he hits, he hits his head on my mom's storage cabinet and I'm like groveling on top of him going, ah, I'm still screaming. And I finally get up and I just, I run up the stairs, the afghan falls, He's still screaming, and I run up the stairs to the second bedroom, and I'm just in the corner, just, you know, just trembling, and I, I couldn't move, I couldn't, and my mom comes back, and she goes, Debbie, I'm home. I couldn't even respond to her. She comes upstairs, she goes, what is, what's wrong, what are you doing? And I'm in, I'm in the corner just going, I think I killed the gas man. <laughs> what do you mean? And I said, well... I was downstairs, and he scared me, and I scared him, and he, I think he had a heart attack. <laughs> so she's just shaking her head, and she goes downstairs. I said, well, did you see? Is he down there? And she said, no, he's not down there. Okay, okay, he's alive. He's living. And I said, Mom, I promise you I will never play hooky again in fear of having a rendezvous with that damn gas man again. That's it. Amen. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is brought to you by our directors, yours truly, Jessica Holmes, Anna Dimitriadis, and James Stead, as well as studio instructors, Elizabeth McKetta and Kate Riley. Theme song, music, and podcast production are by Dan Costello. Hear more at hearcostello.com. Our partners include Boise State Public Radio, the Boise State Story Initiative, Neighborhood All-Stars, The Rose Room, Bricolage, and Red Feather. A big thanks goes out to our Story Story think tank, volunteers, and photographer Will Jones. Join us on the podcast next week for the second helping of stories from Full Plate. Learn more at storystorynight.com. <laughs>